Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Behind the Human. I'm your host, Mark Champagne, and it's my job to unpack these stories and mental fitness practices of people living at the top of their game personally and professionally. Today, we have Zach Arnold, who is an award-winning Hollywood editor and producer. Just a few notable credits, Cobra Kai, Empire, Burn Notice, and Glee. He's also a documentary director. Um, a career coach, a two-time American Ninja Warrior, which I'd love to unpack that one, and creator of the Optimize Yourself program and podcast. And above all, just a great human. So I'm excited to have you on the show. Welcome. Yeah, thank you. It means a lot to me. This is a, this is a huge honor. Uh, we might have to dig a little bit more into the whole talking to people at their top of their game. I might have, <laughs> uh, might have some disclaimers about how that might not be totally true. Uh, but yeah, happy to, happy to <laughs> chat further. And it really means a lot that uh, you had me on the show. So thank you. Absolutely. The pleasure is mine. Well, before we get into the work and um, everything that you're about, some of the backstory and all of that, you know the drill on this show. You know, the first question is just, as we speak right now in present day, who are you? Mm. Uh, I didn't actually have a booking for the Existential Crisis podcast until tomorrow, uh, <laughs> but I'll save my, I'll, I'll use my answer today. I guess I can use it on that one as well. This, this is a really, really tough question to start with, as I'm sure you know, and it probably leads to some really great conversations. And I am somebody that realizes that there isn't an answer to this question, and it's a constantly evolving spectrum. Mm. Um, I am a person that used to believe that I was my work. I would have, if you had asked me that question 10 years ago, oh, well, I'm a Hollywood film and television editor. Didn't you read my bio? Yeah. <laughs> right. But now I've, I've realized that there, the, you can really unpack it and go so much deeper into who you are. And there is a layer where it's pretty consistent. And then there's a whole bunch of other layers on top of it that are constantly changing. So yeah, on the surface, I am an editor. I'm a producer. I'm a director. I'm a podcaster. I'm a career strategist, right? I'm a career therapist. There's so many different things that I am in the present moment. If I were to go a layer deeper, I would say that amongst all of those, if I were to break it down to two, I am a storyteller and I'm a teacher. Mm. We go even deeper. I'm a dad. That's a really big core part of who I am. And the, the major career transition and shift that I made was largely because of an identity crisis between I thought I was a good dad and a present dad realizing, oh boy, that's actually not even remotely true. So going yeah. a layer deeper, that's a, a big core part of my identity that's probably not going to change. But what I've learned through years of reflection, which, you know, probably something we're going to talk a little bit about today on the, the show, the reflection, um, realizing that ultimately it doesn't matter if it's film or television or podcasting or writing or any of the the various things that I do is that I see myself as somebody that wants to inspire others to step outside their own comfort zones so that they can realize their true potential. So mm. whatever it is that I'm doing, whether it's Ninja Warrior or the editing projects that I choose or the podcast or whatever it might be, I see myself as serving an example of somebody that is both successful, but also has a tremendous amount of failures and uh, being honest and open with that journey. So people realize we're all human together and seeing the things that I'm putting myself through and achieving um, is inspiring others to realize, oh, there isn't that much difference between this person and me. Maybe I should give it a try. So I, I do everything I possibly can to not be on the pedestal that so many others are desperately trying to climb to the top. I'd rather be in the dirt at the bottom of the pedestal with everybody else in the trenches. So um, that's the most circuitous non-answer to your question, but maybe it still answers your question. I don't know. Oh, it absolutely does. And I mean, that's why I, I asked that question to start things off because it always, 
it always kicks, you know, the conversation off in what I think uh, a pretty authentic way. And uh, typically, we always come full circle by the end of our, our chat, which is always a beautiful experience. I did want to ask you, though, like, practically speaking, how, how did you get to that level of clarity of, you know, the, the person you are right now, or, or at one point, you're, you're probably in a position where, like, this is the person I'm striving to become, um, and, and get to that place. And, and then of course now, you know, there's, uh, I imagine you're, you're, you're checking in with yourself, uh, every now and then to see like, am I still on track and whatnot? I'm just, I'm just curious from a practical standpoint, what did you do to get, get to that level? Like, was it journaling? Was it meditation? Was it something in between, you know, uh, I think it's, it's going to be a, it's going to be a combination of all of those plus the absence of all of those. So uh, the unfortunate slash fortunate part of the story is that I came to all of these realizations that what was probably one of the the darkest or worst moments of my career, which was also at the absolute height of my career. Mm-hmm. So if we rewind yeah. backwards a little bit, like I had said, if I were to answer the question, "Who are you?" ten fifteen years ago, well, I'm a Hollywood film and television editor. Yeah. What I do is who I am. Like I had this in- inextricable connection between the work that I do and my identity, which for anybody that's listening is a very, very dangerous place to live. But I lived there for a long, long time working towards the industry's definition of success. And that definition of success is that if you're in movies, you're winning Oscars or people are you know, going to the theater and buying tickets and your movie's making hundreds of millions of dollars. That defines you successful in television. It means that millions and millions of people are watching your show on television, they're talking about it and it's part of the zeitgeist. So you're yeah. constantly clawing your way through all of these lower budget, no name projects, no money, because you wanna, it really is all about it. And I've talked to so many people in my uh, career program where they all say the same thing. I just wanted to have conversations with people where they recognized what I worked on. Like, oh, I love that show. So that was the yeah. definition of success. So I was at the absolute hike or height or peak of that moment when I was working on the TV show Empire. This was back in 2015. Uh, And Empire at the time, season one, was a cultural juggernaut. You want to talk about taking over the zeitgeist? It's virtually impossible now with how divergent people's attention is via streaming, via network. Even back in 2015, even though it wasn't quite as dispersed, it was much, much harder to get the attention collectively of an entire culture. Empire had it. I mean, it was getting 25 million people to watch an episode live that night, which nobody was able to do up until then. And frankly, nobody's done since. So how did you feel in that moment with, I mean, I know there were a crazy amount of hours. We'll get to that. But like, just, just in in terms of what you just shared, like the, the sheer, I guess, excitement around working on a show that has that level of attention. Yeah. So at number one, it's very surreal. And you're, you're sitting in a small dark room with no windows or black cardboard over the windows in this case that they don't want any daylight and you got to be in your cave, right? <laughs> uh, and I was commuting three hours a day to this job and I was just thinking to myself, well, th- this is what it's all been about. The years and years of struggle I'd been in the industry for I think 12 or 13 years at that point. It's like, this was the payoff, right? I'm sitting in this room and I'm working in this timeline and Avid. I'm doing the same thing I've been doing for 13 years, but this time... I know that a week from now, 25 million people are going to be watching what I'm doing. And it was, it's, it's so surreal, you can't comprehend it because yeah. you realize nothing's changed. It's still me with my computer and my raw footage and my notes and the, your day-to-day just doesn't change and you don't really comprehend the effect that it's having. So that was like the height of it all. 
And then at yeah. the same time, when I was in the, the process of editing the season one finale, which I knew in a week or two was going to be the, the biggest episode of television that we had seen in years, if not decades. And I was at the helm with a steering wheel. And I had been putting my son to bed or my, my kids to bed via FaceTime every night mm. for months and months because my commute was so harsh. Um, and as I, I was putting them to bed the way that I always do via FaceTime, they were reading a book and I would just ask them about their day. They were like, you know, three and five at the time. And my wife thought she had hung up and she hadn't. And my son, who was give or take about five at the time, said to her, why doesn't daddy want to come home at night and put us to bed? Why doesn't he love us? Yeah. I still have a hard time telling that story. Yeah. Well, as a dad of two boys, I, I have a hard time even just, I, I knew that story and it, it just hearing it from you just it lands right in the heart. I should say yeah. right in the stomach, really. So that I could not have been any closer to the height of the success that I wanted and felt like such a failure. And I said, this, this can't be it. Because if this is it, and I reached that point at a very early age in my career, um, I must have been, I don't know, in my early 30s at the time. And okay. most people to get to that point were definitely uh, definitely more seasoned and more experienced. Um, so I just thought to myself, this can't be it. Like, this is the next 30 years of my life. This is the only thing I've ever done to make a living. Since I was in high school, I was an entrepreneur selling editing services. In college, I was editing wedding videos and bar mitzvahs and everything to learn my craft. I never ever made any income and supported myself doing anything but editing. And I'm like, I can't do this for 30 more years. This can't be all that there is. And that was kind of when the, the big existential crisis occurred. And I realized I need to be somebody else. And I, I don't know who that person is. And that's when I started to dig into any personal development resource that I could find and started listening to podcasts and just trying to figure out who, who are the people that I need to surround myself with digitally or in person that can become uh, my mentors and start to help me learn to, to understand how to unpack all of this um, and mm. found a, a series of them, uh, whether it was just, you know, would take an online course or it would be a book like I'm now obsessed with reading and books. Uh, one of my uh, one of my uh, book mentors and digital mentors that now I've actually had the opportunity to, to interview as well as Chase Jarvis. Oh, uh, yeah, he talks good. about how how books are mentorship at scale. Right. So I'm always constantly trying to bring new mentors into my life to learn things. And it really was it was learning the reflection process more than anything. And what I've discovered over the course of the last eight to 10 years, and I know that you're going to agree with this, is that essentially the quality of the questions that you ask yourself dictates the quality of your entire life. So I thought mm -hmm. I have to start learning how to ask myself better questions. So the mm -hmm. very first question that I don't remember exactly how I came uh, across it, what course or whatnot. Uh, but the first question I asked myself was, is there a way to replace my income as an editor doing something that allows me to be more present with my family? So it was an exploration of, is it even possible? Then all of a sudden, in just a matter of, I think it was only three or four years, not only did I answer the question, but I solved the problem. Like, oh, I have found something that I can do that is much more fulfilling, that allows me to be home in the afternoon to help my kids with my homework. So then yeah. it became another question. Can I now do this making a living and be present with my kids, but do it in 20 hours a week versus 50 or 60 hours a week? And it's just this, a constant evolution of these little questions. Um, but it was really kind of going back to the fundamental idea of I have to be very clear about the question that I'm solving. And yes. if I'm solving the wrong question, then what's the point? So I've really become um, very much a, a student 
of how do I ask myself better questions? And then I now teach that to my students. How do you ask yourself better questions? Um, because that's ultimately what's going to lead to a higher quality life. I mean, you mentioned this period of, of, of testing or, or looking for, I guess, the solutions or the, the answers to that initial question, is there a way to replace my income and, as an editor and, and be uh, more present and be with my family? And you said, you know, in, in, in the period of about three or four years, you answered that. And you, you kind of said that fast because I, I do know that three or four years in the grand, you know, book or as a, as a chapter is, uh, is small in, in, in relation to our overall life. But not when you're in it. Like three or four years is a long time. When oh my you're... God, I felt like it took forever. Exactly. Is this ever going to happen? Dear Lord. So I wanted like from that moment when you had that, you know, just heartbreaking experience uh, overhearing what your, your uh, son said on the phone to getting, leaving the industry or, or even just taking some of the first steps into exploring other paths. Like, what was happening uh, outside of, I know you were reading books and, and so forth, but practically speaking on those drives into to work and whatnot, like in, while you were still in that environment, what did you do? Like, how did you help your mind to transition, I guess, is the mm, question. That's Yeah, that's a really good question. Because uh, uh, when I, I've been commuting for most of my career, because I live in Los Angeles. So it's just, you know, welcome to the grind of living and working in LA. Um, and before... It was just that was just kind of time to zone out, right? You'd yeah. either listen to to music. Sometimes I would just listen to nothing, but not a productive nothing. It wasn't like understanding the value of boredom in space yet. It was just like zoning out. I'm exhausted and I don't want to think kind of space. Yeah. Um, and then I started listening to to just some general personal development or kind of like life hack, life optimization podcast. Kind of when those were a really big thing. Um, and what I realized is I needed to be way more intentional about how I was using that time. So I have very, very vivid memories of every single day when I was in my car for two to three hours, I had a curriculum. I created a curriculum where I would say, I'm working through this online course and today's goal is I'm going to get through these lessons. And then when I'm done, I'm going to record an audio recording of me talking through it, putting mm. together my next steps, getting home, whatever time it was, writing down the next steps, just taking the smallest, tiniest actions. And it's yeah. not like any of those actions move the needle but it was the feeling that I was doing something that was moving me forwards. Because what killed me was the thought of this is never going to change. But if it was, I just need to send one email or I need to fill out one worksheet or I need to do one exercise in this lesson, it always felt like there was some momentum moving towards where I wanted to be and away from where I didn't want to be. So I would build entire curriculums and Trello boards and Evernote. And it was basically, I'm going to an online university and the only thing I can do is consume because I can't write, I can't do worksheets in my car, but I'm going to consume everything that I can and set aside very intentional time, nights and weekends when my family was asleep so I could do the actions. And it was slow, but it was consistent. And I always felt yeah. like I was moving towards something and getting really little wins along the way. And kind of the, the big foundational shift for me, and this was... I don't remember the timeline. It was less than a year between this moment and realizing um, that this was possible. The biggest transformational moment for me was when I made my first $97 sale. Okay. I had one person that basically they bought a table of contents for an online course that I was building um, that was all about how, how to move more and be more active and energetic at your desk. Because in my industry, everybody sits in their sedentary 24-7. 
And yeah, with no lights, very, very poor working conditions. And I'd become a vo- vocal advocate for just moving more and exercising. I was doing Spartan races at the time. Um, I hadn't really, I hadn't monetized it. It wasn't a business plan or anything, but I had become a voice for this. And I thought, well, maybe this is an opportunity for me to provide value to people and then I can monetize it in return. One person bought a table of contents for $97. I'm like, that's it. I can do it. This can be done. <laughs> right? Yeah. So once that moment happened, it was just this little tiny win that threw the gasoline on the fire of now it's time to make this work. And I'm still in the process every single day of incrementally growing and scaling and get a little bit bigger. Um, you know, but that's a million dollars later. So yeah. the, but it was that first $97 sale that completely changed my outlook on life because I had never been paid for anything that wasn't editing. And that totally changed my identity. Mm, wow. Hello, friends. Given you're here, I'm making the assumption that you're motivated to be mentally fit. So with that in mind, I want to let you know about the Better Questions newsletter, which publishes once or twice a month, providing all of us the opportunity to slow down, think, and ask better questions. As you know, quality questions are my thing. And this is an opportunity to share the prompts I've studied and curated to help our minds be healthier, clearer, more intentional, and expand our mental capacity. You can sign up over at behindthehuman.com slash newsletter, which will also give you a preview of my debut book, Personal Socrates. That's behindthehuman.com slash newsletter. Now back to the show. So what was the, what was the final straw for you? Like when, what, run us through the, how you were feeling the day it was the last day for you going into that editing booth or studio, yeah. whatever it's called. Wow. It's, it's funny because this, this is actually a, a spectrum. And just in full disclosure, even though it only took me four to five years to make the transition, I still edit. I'm still working yeah. on the television show Cobra Kai, but that's totally by choice because yeah, it's, it's in alignment terms. with my values and it's on my terms. But as far as doing things that were not on my terms, I've never actually told this story, but instantly I had this vivid, vivid image of the moment I'm like, I'm done. Um, and I was working on an episode of season two of Empire because I had gone back because I didn't know of any other way to make a living, but I kind of went in with my tail between my legs. Like, all right, well, I can't yeah. really negotiate because I'm not coming from a place of strength. And I just kind of took what I could get. And it was just a number one, the, the season itself, the show was awful. Season one, I'm very proud of season two beyond train wreck and unwatchable. And I was a part of that train wreck. I was helping to create that train wreck. Okay. Um, and there is a, a scene that I very vividly remember. I even remember the episode number. It was episode 215, which means season two, episode 15. And I was cutting this giant montage of one of the kid characters getting drunk in a strip club. And I'm scanning through hours of stripper B-roll in footage. And granted, it was network TV, so nobody was naked, but that's almost worse. (laughs) And I'm just going through this. I'm like, how is this my life? I have worked so hard and this is my life as I'm editing a montage of strippers and this kid drunk. I'm like, I'm done. And Mm. a week later, I walked in and I gave my notice and that was it. And I didn't work on the show anymore. And I've since edited other shows, but I was much more selective about the people that I worked with the conditions of the show and also what are the stories that the the show was telling. So everything that I took from that point forwards was a much more calculated decision beyond just this is the, the industry's definition of me being successful versus this is my definition of success. Yeah. Well, cause I imagine, I mean, you, uh, you have a respect for the craft and I mean, you spent so many years, you know, developing your own skill set and whatnot that, 
there's got to be a part of you, uh, and it seems like it's that part still alive today that you know thoroughly enjoys that work. I do, and that that that's the other really really difficult part of associating your identity with your craft is that I wasn't at the point yet where I even knew how to separate them. Monetarily, I was figuring it out, but I still hadn't even had the existential identity crisis of who am I if I'm not an editor? And that, that actually came later mm. after the, the money started to come in fairly consistently. And I started to have these massive bouts of imposter syndrome of, wait, now people are paying me and they've used words like thought leader. Like, I'm not a thought leader. I'm not an influencer. What are they talking about? No, 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 stop, right? So yeah. I went through this massive amount of imposter syndrome because I had the identity crisis associating myself as an editor and that was breaking apart. But yes, I still absolutely love the craft and it doesn't mean that I'm never going to edit anything again. But like you said before, I want to edit things on my terms where I feel it's putting good stories out into the world or I now in the, the career uh, coaching program that I have work with a large amount of people in the entertainment industry, whether it's editors, writers, and storytellers, helping them to learn a lot of the things that I learned too late and not making the same mistakes. So mm -hmm. I'm now kind of editor adjacent, where instead of me cutting the actual shows that I love, I'm helping to coach and bring more work-life balance and fulfillment to the people that are editing the shows that I love. So yeah. it's, I've actually found it so much more rewarding to watch something that I really like and see a client's name in the credits as opposed to mine. But mm, it, it, it was a long process to separate those identities. And it really wasn't even until about a year ago that I could comfortably tell people in public out loud, I don't edit anymore. That was hard. It's, and yeah. it's, to this day, I am now confident in it. But a lot of people still aren't even aware because I do still associate with Cobra Kai, which is a current show. So if I go to industry mixers or eventually like, oh, what are you working on right now? I'm like, I'm, I'm not cutting anymore. What do you mean you're not cutting? Like, People don't even know how to have the conversation if you can't talk about your current job. And at first it was scary to do that. But then the more that I was authentic about it, I'm like, man, I really admire you. I wish I could do that. I'm like, you can't. There's no reason that you can't, which like you said, comes back full circle to I'm putting myself in that position to prove that it is possible. Yeah. Well, I would like to talk. I mean, we, we talked a little bit about this before we hit record because, you know, just talking about Hollywood and and the work and what's going on right now. There's there's a as we speak, there's a writer's strike uh, that's happening. But the other thing that that comes to mind that ties into all of this, you know, around your work, around just separating your identity from your work. There's a lot of career transitions in general, a lot, especially in the tech industry. And I mean, I see that with my own you know, mental fitness activations, just massive, you know, reorganizations and so forth. Um, so I'm curious, I'm curious to get your perspective on the, like the conversations that people can start having around that separation. Uh, and you, you can start with, with, uh, with Hollywood if you'd like and, and kind of what's happening right now, but just like, what are some, what are some practices or some prompts that, that you find helpful when you're working with your clients or groups, um, to, to kind of like take that one step remove situation. Cause I think that's beneficial for anyone, including us that are, you know, doing work that uh, feels very aligned, but sometimes, yeah, I, I feel like, yeah, I'm the, I'm the question guy or the mental fitness guy, um, which is great, but, but I'm more than that, you mm -hmm. know? And, yeah. and, you know, I struggle with that as well. Yeah. So I have a, a process that I run my students through a framework that's called the go far framework. 
So okay. it's an acronym for G-O-F-A-R, Go Far. Um, and I won't go too deep into the history of it, but I need to sure. give a little bit of a history of where this comes from. This is actually the subject of my documentary film that I produced and directed years ago about the first quadriplegic with muscular dystrophy to become a licensed scuba diver. Mm. That was when I realized that I had a calling just beyond editing. Uh, so the very yeah. short version of it was that, spoiler alert, unfortunately, he passed away at a fairly young age, far beyond his life expectancy, but passed away at 30. And when I was at his funeral service, people were talking all about the things that he had accomplished in his life. And I, I had only known him later in his life. So I had known that he had uh, recently gotten a, a law degree. I'd gone to his law school graduation. And for anybody that can't comprehend how meaningful that is, imagine going through three years of law school with your hands underneath your legs you can't take any notes. You can't highlight. You can't flip the page of a book. Imagine that's your life 24-7 for three years. Yeah. That was him. He, he was quadriplegic and had no use of his limbs. That was one small thing that he had accomplished. I found out later that he was first uh, quadriplegic to become a licensed scuba diver. He was the national poster child for the Muscular Dystrophy Association. I'm hearing all of these things, and I'm like, somebody's going to have to share this story. Like, the story yeah. can't end in this church today. And then all of a sudden, there was kind of this deafening silence in my mind. And I looked around, I'm like, it's going to be me, isn't it? I'm going to have to be the guy. I got to tell the story. Yeah. And then somebody else stands up and they were talking about this motivational program. His name was Christopher Rush. This motivational program that Christopher was creating to help those with disabilities overcome their disabilities and uh, achieve their goals. It was the Go Far program. I'm like, well, there's the title of my movie, done. That yeah. was easy, right? Still is the, the <laughs> title to this day. But I teach that framework to my students every single day. And it's a series of questions and prompts, which is why I think you and I get along so well. So <laughs> yeah, the, the acronym stands for goals, obstacles, focus, act, and review, or actually thanks largely in part to you, I've taken a little bit of liberty and I now call it review and reflect. Mm, yes. So when it comes to the, the mo most basic prompts, if I were going to break this down and there's a series of questions, but would be as far as your goals, what do you really want to achieve and why? Obstacles, yeah. what's stopping you? Focus, what do you need to prioritize next? Act, how can you take action consistently? And upon re review and reflection, how can you be 1% better tomorrow than you are today? That would, mm. That's kind of the general um, overview of the main reflections. And then within, within each one, there's a series of prompts after that. Um, but it's nothing but a series of questions that people have to answer to reflect on what's the vision for my life, all the way down to what am I supposed to be doing tomorrow from 1 to 2.30 p.m.? Taking sure. it from the major macro big picture vision to what's the micro that I just need to do tomorrow or this afternoon that's so small that I can do it and feel like I'm moving forwards. So is it that, but when it comes to um, disconnecting the identity from the work, I imagine, you know, that, that first question, really understanding, you know, like what you want and why mm -hmm. is, the, is the unlock of, the, yeah, okay. The unlock is not what I want to do. The unlock is why do I want to do it? That's where people yeah. really stumble. That's where people get stuck and they're like, well, I don't, what do you mean? Why do I want to do it? Well, I've got to pay the bills and I need to support my kids. And then, you know, I have to put money I'm like, no, 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 no. Why are you doing this work? Why is it meaningful to you? Why do you want to tell these stories or what, what is the impact you want to have in the world? Deer in headlights. 
They've never had to answer questions like this before. It was always about the rat race. I'm on the yeah. hamster wheel and I've been told if I want to get farther, I have to run faster. And they mm-hmm. realize that when they're forced to stop and forced to reflect, they realize they're making a lot of the wrong choices. And in order to go in a new direction, they have to figure out what that direction is first and why it is that they want it. And when it comes kind of comes back to this idea of the present writer strike, um, and I don't know when this is releasing, but I'm fairly confident as long as it's in the next several months, this will be relevant because I don't think this is going to get resolved quickly. Um, okay. But this is kind of a forced stop. People yeah. are being forced to stop what they're doing. They're not, they can't use the rat race and the day-to-day to distract them. And it's not just writers. The entire industry is very slowly and methodically shutting down because you, you don't have writers, well, yeah. you don't have stories. <laughs> you don't have stories, you don't have footage to shoot. Therefore, you don't have footage to edit. You don't have footage to color correct. It's, it's just this giant chain. And mm-hmm. it's almost like I'm living through the early stages of the pandemic all over again. Yeah. Where when the pandemic hit in uh, March of 2020, I just finished up season three of Cobra Kai, thinking, oh, it's going to be so great. I've got a few months off. I can focus on the business. But I always knew that another season of Cobra Kai was coming. So it was about how many months can I go running the business before I go back to the editing? And all of a sudden, that all disappeared. I'm like, oh my God, I only have one way to support my family. And that's with the stuff that I'm doing as a quote unquote side hustle online with my coaching. And mm-hmm. nobody, nobody's going to pay me money right now during the pandemic. I'm screwed. Like, that's it. Like, I'm going to have to, you know, eke out all the emergency savings and we're going to have to cut back on everything. And in hindsight, I mean, duh, like everybody on the planet was going through this forced period of reflection, realizing where I am in my life is not where I want to be. They needed to come to somebody that could help them unpack that. So my business more than doubled over the course of the next nine months. Same thing is happening again because of the strike. Again, went through this crisis of, well, uh, if people don't have work, nobody's going to join my coaching program and work through my exercises and use my courses. Same thing again. They're realizing when the strike is over, I don't want to go back to the jobs that I'm doing and I hate the work that I'm doing. Help me understand who I am beyond mm. just the work that I do so I can find a more meaningful path. So again, huge amount of growth and explosion happening because of the strike. But again, it's that idea of we're, we're forcing ourselves to reflect whether we yeah. like it or not. Yeah. I'm going to put a pin on that because I do want to ask you about how do we avoid just getting trapped in these cycles of the force reflection and have it a little bit more consistent in our routines and lives so we don't have to hit these these big walls. But but before going there, I I do have to ask you in the in the in the situation of the pandemic, how did you flip your mind from survival mode to we're going to make this happen? Uh, I don't think that it re- to me, it wasn't a choice because I, I know myself in whatever situation I'm in, I've just learned that I just accept the circumstances and I find a way to succeed. So I think that okay. a lot of that conditioning comes from uh, the what I would call the hobby slash obsession with obstacle course racing and ninja where you're just I mean, if you're if you decide I'm going to sign up for a Spartan beast, which is a half marathon in the mountains, 50 plus obstacles, trenches, cold water, all these other things. You can't get to mile seven and be like, yeah, I changed my mind. I don't like this anymore. And this (laughs) isn't fun. You, You learn how to flip a switch that says, this is reality. You're going to get to the finish line, whatever it takes. It's, it's a really cool thing to discover that about yourself that you, you just figure it out. So I went through a period of about a week staring at the wall saying, well, I'm screwed. Well, that's not true. You're just stuck in the trenches and you don't have any choice. You have to find the way through this. Mm -hmm. 
So I just started to reach out and sent some emails to people on my list and was asking questions and realized that I could be a resource to genuinely provide value and help people through it. Mm -hmm. So that's when the switch flipped from, well, I just I'm going to sit here and wait it out, going to have my head in the sand and hope things work out versus I'm going to make this work with the cards that I've been dealt. And that's where the growth came from. But I think yeah. that you're you're also right in that we we can't wait for the world or society or our industry to stop. So then we're forced to reflect. It has to become a habit for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But but I mean, hold on, like your your point, like, because I knew there was more behind this. I mean, there that critical period, that critical week is important where you, you know, where you let those emotions sit. You went there. And, and I've been through that, you know, before too, like. Because I mean, I, I think we, we have this automatic, there's a survival mode. Sometimes we get caught in like a depressive loop, but then often there's, you know, like we move into action or like, what are we going to do? Like fix, fixing mode. Mm -hmm. and, and in some cases, then we don't process and we don't actually sit and feel like this sucks, you know, like shit is about to end here type thing. And it sounds like you you took some time to go through that and then flipped into, okay, yeah, I need to start sending these messages and, and then you get into a rhythm and a cadence and in a way you go. Right. And yeah. I think that's, I'm, I'm happy you shared that because that's like, that's realistic. Right. And I think it doesn't matter what you're going through. Um, that kind of recipe can be very helpful. Yeah. And that, that's a, that's a fairly important part of my regimen, whether it's conscious or in that case, it was unconscious. Like I didn't have this time block on my calendar that said, sure. reflect on your existence at the beginning of pandemic, <laughs> yeah, right? Exactly. Didn't have that one For on the calendar days. at the time. Um, but <laughs> but uh, being very conscious of how important that reflection is, is something that I do in some way, shape or form, get on my calendar just about every week. I'll give you a yeah. perfect example. This is something that we talked about uh, before we started recording, where you're like, how are you? And I'm like, I'm great, but I'm also completely and totally exhausted because I just finished the biggest launch of my entire business that I've been working on since the beginning of the year and I'm spent. So yeah. what I have on my calendar this week, there's a span, there's a banner on my entire week that says garbage week. Mm -hmm. And what that means is I am intentionally scheduling as little as possible because I know I need to decompress. My brain is already thinking, oh, I got to send these emails and I got to do this. And what are we going to do for our next launch in September? I'm like, nope. This is your week to just clean out the garbage. You got a stack of books on your desk. I'm going to clean those yeah. out. Or I need to reach out and schedule that follow-up cleaning with my dentist. All the things that you kind of leave to the side because creativity is an inherently very messy process. To be in a state of flow and really be authentic, you have to be willing to let other things in your life go. But yeah. I, I allow myself the time and the space to process those things so I can almost kind of put the, the mini bouts of burnout and plan them like, yep, I'm going to be tired and I'm going to be burned out this week. I'm going to accept that. I'm going to be okay with the feelings. I'm going to be okay with sleeping in, skipping workouts. That's just part of the process. But then another part that I intentionally schedule every week, and if I don't get it every week, I see the pieces fall apart really, really quickly, is I have some form of reflection for two or three hours. And for me, it's taking a hike. So okay. I go out and I hike in nature where I'm not allowed to listen to anything, but I've got my earbuds in the whole time. And whenever I have random ideas, I just talk to myself. So I look like a crazy mm. homeless person walking around yeah, yeah. The, the hills of Los Angeles, working through outlines for a blog post, or I need to send these emails, like just all this random stuff. But that way of kind of triggering these thoughts and ideas in this space of quote unquote boredom in silence, that to me, I have to have that on the calendar 
And if I get caught up in the rat race, I can feel when I haven't done that. And I feel this anxiety and this pressure of why, why am I so overwhelmed? Why do I feel all this has to be, Oh, I didn't do the hike last week. That's what's yeah. going on. Right. So that, that reflection is so super important to me. Okay. What, what are some other non-negotiables for you during, uh, during like your consistent, uh, schedule or week and whatnot outside of the hike that, you know, it's, it's hard for those things to be moved, uh, whether they're in your calendar or they're just rituals that like dad's doing this today. Mm-hmm. Don't, yeah. don't, don't mess with him when he's doing this. So the, the biggest non-negotiable that seems obvious, but it wasn't for most of my career is sleep. Mm. It used to be, well, yeah. if, if there's a deadline and more needs to get done, that means less sleep tonight. So in my industry specifically, and I would guess it's very similar in the tech world, uh, people wear sleep deprivation as a badge of honor, right? It's yeah. a, the, the less that I can sleep and the more I can get done, the more value I have. And it's just the dumbest thing ever on the planet. Like, just please stop. If you live in that world, please stop. Because all yeah. the science tells you otherwise, and you're literally just digging yourself an early grave. So for me, yeah. sleep is an absolute non-negotiable. It does not matter how far behind I am, how much anxiety I have about the things that need to get done the next day. For me, it's usually by around eight or nine o'clock, I will check out. I don't work consistently until eight or nine every day, but when I'm in launch mode and there's a lot to get done, yeah, I'll probably work a 12 hour day, but I used to work an 18 hour day. It's like, well, it's 9 PM. I know I should check out and I'm really tired, but I've got four hours of things that I didn't get to. So I would work until one or two, still get up at six and do another day. Ask me how well that worked out. But I I could do that for months. I'm capable of doing that for months until I realize I'm not. And I essentially lost an entire year of my life because I did that for three straight months and an entire year of productivity was gone because I was so burned out. So non-negotiable is sleep. I have, uh, I used the the aura ring and I was looking at the data and I'm like, I'm just going to look at the trends. Let's see if I'm totally full of shit or not. Let's see if I practice what I preach. So it's not about looking at one day or one week. It was what's the average amount of sleep I've gotten over three years, eight Mm. hours and 34 minutes a night. I'm like, yes, that means that I have, I have kept that boundary and it's not just a boundary. It's a guardrail. There's nothing that comes up that allows me to move sleep unless it's like a one-time thing where I'll, be at an industry event till 10 30 or 11 or something important for the family. Like every once in a while, sure. I'll make an exception. But if we're looking at trends, sleep is an absolute non-negotiable. The other non-negotiable would be that I need to be available for my kids when they need help with their homework. It seems Mm. really, really small. And I'm just as human as everybody else where I have to catch myself, where if I'm in the middle of something and they knock on the door, like, can you help me with math? And like, yeah, breath. You asked for this, step away from the computer and help them with their math homework, right? But that was one of the questions that I asked myself very early on. It wasn't even, how do I make a living doing something else? It really started with, is it possible to make a living and be home with my kids when they get home to help them with their homework? It was that small of a question. But in my industry, that basically means you can't work in the industry because it's impossible to do that. With the pandemic and working from home, that's changed some. Sure. It seemed like an unsolvable question when I got there is, well, I can't edit for a living and help my kids with their homework at 3 p.m. Those two are that doesn't work that way. So that was really where the questioning started. So that's another non-negotiable for me where, yeah, every once in a while I'll have an afternoon meeting or an afternoon podcast. But by and large, the trend has to be no matter how busy I am, my kids knock on my door and they need help with their homework. I am there to help them. It's the whole reason I have done all of this. So why would I say no? 
Uh, and then another one that's not completely non-negotiable because I'm not the only one in control of it. Uh, but we've set up the habit of at least twice a week making dinner as a family and sitting down and eating it. So that one, because mm. there's four people in the house, it's a little bit more negotiable, even a little bit more than maybe I would like, to be perfectly honest. Sure. Um, but, you know, a lot of things come up in the lives of middle schoolers and my wife, who's a teacher. So we don't do it every week, um, but we really strive to put the phones away, spend an hour, make something and just sit down yeah. and eat and just talk like real human beings. It's a, that's an important one. And, and there's some good science that supports, you know, families that prioritize eating together like that, that uh, on kind of all facets of, of life, there are, there are tremendous benefits. And I oh, think... Oh, yeah, huge benefits. Right? It's a huge part of our society and our development. And this is a little bit of a tangent, but not really. Um, I had one of those kind of <laughs> discoveries as a parent where you're like, oh... I, I get why we're doing this now. Uh, my wife, or not my wife, my daughter just celebrated her uh, her uh, 11th birthday. So she's in fifth grade, just getting ready to graduate. So she had kind of a birthday party slash graduation party with a bunch of her friends. And we were at Benihana, which when you're at Benihana at a Saturday night, it is just 70 screaming children doing their birthday party. So my head was about to explode. <laughs> That's not the point. The point is we were sitting at this table with nine fifth graders sitting around it. And every single one of them was in their phones except for our daughter. Yeah. She was just awesome. sitting there talking to her friends. And I just looked at my wife and we're like, we did okay. Cause all yeah. of them were just they were doing all this stuff with their screens. And our daughter was just sitting there. Was yeah. She wasn't even thinking about having her phone out cause her entire life, she knows when you're at a table, you're present and you're with people. And even she was annoyed with her friends. She's like, guys, let's put the phone down and let's just play. They're like, okay. Like they, they, it was a reality they weren't even yeah. privy to. But that That's to me was one of those power. moments where I realized that 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 being a non-negotiable led to a very tangible result. And I think that that's going to very much be a superpower that she possesses her entire life. Oh, yeah. it's awesome. That, that, that brings a smile to my face and warms the heart to, to, to hear that because, uh, you know, unfortunately, you, well, you obviously saw it, it. It's it's not the norm. And I think, you know, I'm biased, obviously, in the work that I do, but I think the greatest gift we can we can give our kids is the, are are the tools around helping them be present and aware because that's where all the magic is. Like that's where like everything that you've been you describing about these career pivots and changes and big questions happen in those moments of of silence where you can, you know, or on the on the on the hike, you know, and and things like that. Like that's that's where the magic is or the sweet spot and and Unfortunately, those moments uh, are are just dwindling away, mm-hmm. and I think we're we're doing you know we're doing as much as we can to, like you said, almost like force them in in a way. And you have these these strikes and whatnot, but I mean, also just intentionally bringing in different practices that will uh, bring in that kind of forced reflection and pause until we can get to that point where we find those moments of stillness mm-hmm. a little bit more naturally. Yeah, but, and one one right? of the things that I've I've uh, come to realize. Um, and this kind of talks about career transitions, kind of talks about identities, kind of talks about existential crises, all kind of wrapped up into a, you know, a nice, neat little package, uh, is that I realized how important moments are. And if we're going to really get existential very, very quickly, it's that if you don't have presence, what do you have? Because if you're not present with whoever the people are or whatever the goal is or the event or anything else, if you're either in the past or the future, well, then there is nothing. I realize that it's, you know, very Zen Buddhist. 
Um, but ultimately, the present and the moments are what we have. And this really big realization that I had that I'm still working through. So this, this is a work in progress of me just kind of reflecting sure. out loud. Um, but I realized that I've spent my entire career creating moments. I artificially mm -hmm. manipulate time and emotion to create moments. That's what movies and television are. They're artificial moments where you think it's about stories and scenes and everything else, but ultimately it's me going into every single frame, making sure that your attention is in the right place on the close up or the wide shot, or the music is coming in at this very second. So you feel something. My entire career has been creating moments. And it's mm -hmm. when I realized if I have the power to do that in a timeline with a digital editor with fiction, can't I do that with my life and with other people, with other people's lives? And once I realized that, it just became that you want to talk about kind of one of the bigger questions of reflection. Am I creating a life that's full of meaningful moments that matter to me? Because it really is all about the moments. And I'm not going to remember most of that dinner at Benihana, but I remember that moment of seeing yeah. my daughter and thinking we did it right. Like we all the years and years of all the other kids at the, the restaurants just being handed a screen so they would shut up. We weathered through it. And even yeah. a couple of times, my wife was like, should we just, I'm like, no, don't give them the phone. Like I would take my son or my daughter outside. We'd calm them down. I'm like, this is going to pay I off. With this. Right. But those, yeah. those moments are what make such a difference. So I'm always thinking what, with whatever it is that I'm doing, am I creating meaningful moments that matter? Cause moments are all that we have. So yeah. now basically I'm taking my, my ability to manipulate moments in the fictional world. And now how do I help other people retell their own stories, knowing that the currency by which we value our lives is not money, but it's time and it's moments. Love it. Love it. Well, I mean, I can't think of a better place to wrap. I mean, ending on, on, on this, this thought of, First of all, that we all have the power to create those moments in our lives and, and also for, for others and pay them forward for, for the people that we, we love and respect in our lives. So, you know, thank you for, uh, A, making the time to come on the show, but, but also for taking those three to four years to really step into, you know, and design the world and the life that you, you know, want to create those meaningful moments for you and your family because, uh, because of that, of course, there are many on the other side through your programs and and the ripple effect of your show, this conversation that um, those people are affected. Um, so in a way, you know, even though, you know, you were working on these big shows that were being viewed by a lot of people that probably, you know, were numbing out to <laughs> the, their own lives in a way. You know, I would say I would say the people you're touching right now uh, through your work uh, is is man a hell of a lot more uh, valuable and impactful. So thank you for that. Yeah, of course. That's that's now why I do what I do, right? Going back to the deeper why and designing these moments that matter. Um, you and I are going to have this conversation. We've recorded it. It's going to go out into the world. And I can all but guarantee, I mean, especially given the people listen to your podcast, there's going to be somebody out there that's going to listen to this, that's going to have some aha moment. Like, oh my God, this never occurred to me. You and I are never going to know. Yeah. We're never going to profit from it. We're never going to get an email from that person, but somebody is going to have an epiphany and it's going to be that ripple effect where something in their life is going to change positively and probably the people around them is going to change positively. And yeah. we may find wow. out about it. We probably never will. But knowing that that possibility occurs is why I do what I do. It's the reason that even though it's still technically editing and it's the world of Hollywood, it's the reason that I love working on the show Cobra Kai. 
because it's not about the craft and it's not about the notoriety. It's about the impact that it has. And I know that there's some kid out there that's in elementary school that's getting bullied, that's going to watch Cobra Kai and he's going to realize I can fight back. I don't have to take this and I can defend myself because that's what I did when I was in elementary school and I saw the original Karate Kid. Again, it's Mm. that deeper meaning, that underlying why of who we really are as people versus what we do. So yes, one area of my life, editing. Another is podcasting. Another is coaching. Another is Ninja Warrior. But it all is about, I want to put put things out into the world that inspire people that they can realize their true potential. Well, thank you for that, brother. And thanks again for, for being here. Uh, until the next conversation, be well. Yeah, you too. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> 